0: All right, if you take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis 28, Genesis, the 28th chapter. <clears throat> Genesis 28, continue our study in the book of Genesis. There was a fellow by the name of Harold Ross who started the New Yorker magazine years ago. very small offices and very little equipment, and they were operating on a shoestring budget at first, and one day in a restaurant downstairs from the offices, he met Dorothy Parker, one of the magazine's first writers, and he said, what are you doing here? Why aren't you upstairs working? She said, somebody else is using the pencil. So I came down to get a cu- cup of coffee. Well, sometimes great things often start with humble beginnings. I don't know if you know anything about the New Yorker magazine, but it's a big operation these days. But uh, uh, to only have one pencil in the office, that's uh, that's kind of on a small scale, right? I think of Ross Perot. He was... Uh, had a multi-billion dollar fortune. He started that with a thousand dollar investment. McDonald's, one of uh, some of your favorite places to eat. Worldwide hamburger chain began with one stand in San Bernardino. Apple computer started in a garage with a couple of guys, young guys, who had an idea. And it's often the same way spiritually. You know, if we could all have a time of testimony, and everybody share their testimony this afternoon as we've heard these testimonies, we could share how God began with us. It's probably amazing how He broke into each one of our lives. Years ago, a Sunday school teacher walked into a Boston shoe store and spoke about Christ to a teenage boy who worked there. I think it, uh, the boy accepted Christ, but uh, he was so ignorant of the basic teachings of the Bible that he, refused, he was refused membership in the church for a year and a half till he could gain some knowledge. Well, that boy's name is Dwight L. Moody. He went on to become one of the most powerful American evangelists of the 19th century. And God's beginning with Jacob here in Genesis 28 is much like that as well. If you take a look at Jacob at the start, you can hardly imagine that this would be a great patriarch, the father of 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. Here he was, a 77-year-old mama's boy. He was a cheat who had to flee for his life from his angry brother, And yet, by God's grace, God began to work in his life. There weren't quick changes. The process took a lifetime. But God's breaking into Jacob's life made the difference, as just he's made the difference in many of your lives tonight, or this afternoon. The chapter begins, or raises a question I think we all need to face. How can God break into my life and begin a work in me? Some of you may not yet have trusted Christ as your Savior. Uh, You wonder, well, is there any way God could begin with me, with all my problems and all my sin? Well, thank God there is. And those of you that are Christians need to ask the same question. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior then God has already begun that work in you. But sometimes it's very easy for us, even as Christians, to become complacent in our relationship with Him. And sometimes we kind of just want to put our spiritual life on autopilot, if you please. And we need to get a new beginning. We need to get going for God. Well, Genesis 28, I believe, shows us this. God begins at the point of my need with His grace, and I should respond to Him. Let's just read the chapter. It's not very long. 22 verses. It says in verse 1, And Isaac called Jacob and blessed him, charged him, and said unto him, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Pandanaram, to the house of Bethel. Thy mother's... uh, Bethuel, thy mother's father, and take thee a wife from thence of the daughters of Laban, thy mother's brother. And God Almighty bless thee, and make thee fruitful, and multiply thee, that thou mayest be a multitude of people, and give thee the blessing of Abraham to thee, and to thy seed with thee, and thou mayest inherit the land wherein thou art a stranger, which God gave unto Abraham. And Isaac sent away Jacob, and he went to Pandanaram, and unto Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. When Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Pandanaram uh, to take him a wife from thence, and that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge, saying, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughters of Canaan. And Jacob obeyed his father and his mother and was gone to Pandanaram. And Esau, seeing that the daughters of Canaan pleased not Isaac, his father, Then went Esau unto Ishmael, and took unto the wives which he had uh, had Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nabajoth, to be his wife. And Jacob went out from Beersheba, and went toward Haran. And he lighted upon a certain place, and tarried there all night, because the sun was set, and he took of the stones of that place, and put them for his pillows, and laid down in a place to sleep, and he dreamed, and behold a ladder set up on the earth, and at the top of reach to heaven, behold the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it, and said, "I am the Lord God of Abraham, thy Father, and the God of Isaac, the land whereon thou liest to thee will I give it, and to thy seed, and thy seed shall be." As the dust of the earth, thou shalt spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in thee, and in thy seed, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with thee, and will keep thee in all places, whither thou goest, and will bring thee again into the land. And I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. And Jacob waked out of his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I knew it not. And he was afraid, and he said, How dreadful is this place, that that this is none other but the house of God and this gate, the gate of heaven. Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he put up for his pillows, and he set up for a pillar and poured oil upon the top of it. And he called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of that city was called Luz at first. And Jacob vowed a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on, so that I am come again to my father's house and place. Then shall the Lord be my God. And this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. The first thing we notice here is that God begins at my point of need. God begins at my point of need. Verse 19 tells us that in problem solving, the first step is to recognize and define the problem. Often our problem is that we don't clearly see the problem. We aren't aware of the great need, and we aren't open to God to move into our lives and to begin to work on the problems. Many times it takes a crisis. And when we're brought to the end of our own abilities and schemes for us to be able to see our need and to be open to God's breaking into our lives. Now, I think this is a helpful principle when you're dealing with others, whether you're trying to share the gospel or give some kind of counsel. Before a person will be receptive to any solution, they must be deeply aware of their problem. And if they're not aware of their great need, they're going to resist anyone trying to fix their lives. So you have to build a relationship with people sometimes, and you have to wait for the time when God kind of yanks the rug out from under them, and He recognizes His need, and then they'll be ready for God's solution. Now, you don't have to read too much between the lines here to see that Jacob, has just had the rug yanked out from under him. Put yourself in his sandals. You've just lied to your blind old father to cheat your brother out of the family blessing or inheritance. Your brother's so mad that he's threatening to kill you. And even though you're early middle age, I guess you could say he was middle age, if he was 77 because he lived till he was 147, so he was middle age, even though you're middle age, you've never been out of the sight of your mama's tent, and your idea of adventure is trying out a new recipe. But now you're being sent off alone on a 500-mile trip through dangerous foreign territory to a pagan city to try to find your mother's relatives, and you don't know whether you're even ready to make it there safely. Your brother would be much more suited for this kind of adventure. He spent many a night in the wild, stalking game. But you've never camped out in your own backyard. But now you're alone on the road. There's no motel. The sun has gone down, so you find a rock for a pillow. And you lay down under the canopy of the stars. And as you lay there listening to all the strange sounds of the night, you think about Your life and your past, and you're confused. You finally had finagled your way to get what you always wanted your brother's birthright and blessing, and you thought that once you got that, you had it made. And here you're on the run with nothing but meager supplies and very uncertain future. So you're confused. And you're also feeling guilty. You cheated your brother. You lied to your blind old father, used the name of his God, and even kissed him in your deception. And then in spite of all of that, he has sent you off with a true spiritual blessing of your grandfather Abraham. And at this point, God is the God of Abraham, and he's the God of your father, but he's not your God. And yet the burden of the blessing of God of Abraham is on your shoulders. And one of the, as one of the Peanuts cartoon characters said, there's no greater burden than having great potential. You're loaded with guilt, anxiety. Do you see how Jacob must have felt? Until now, he's always schemed his way out of these tight spots. But now he's fresh out of schemes. He's on his own for the first time. He's wrestling with a guilty, confusing past. He's facing anxious, uncertain future. It's significant that God begins working with Jacob at this point in his life. It's the first time that the Lord got Jacob's attention. Jacob saw his great need. One way or another, God has to bring each one of us to that point before he breaks through in your life. Often, as in the case of Jacob, it's when we first leave the shelter of home. I remember that even though I trusted Christ as a young child, I was nine years old when I trusted Christ, and I can remember it like it was yesterday, God didn't really begin to work in my life in a significant way until I was in college. There I was in an environment of a secular university where the Christian faith was under attack. And some of you may not know this, but I started my studies in college as an art student. My goal was to be an art teacher. The art department was filled with hippies and people who had very liberal Philosophy of life. My teachers many times would challenge, uh, uh, would be a challenge to my Christian faith. Now, thankfully, I had some Christian friends and a professor in history department who cared as well as some people in my home church who were praying for me. I'd been raised in a Christian home and I have uh, was uh, hadn't been an attending a Bible preaching church. My pastor was a an expositor, uh, expository preacher. He went verse by verse, much like I go with you. And it made me realize that, you know, I could get my worldview from the Bible or I could get my worldview from some godless teachers and fellow students. And it was at that point that my relationship with Christ really, I think, began to develop. Now, If you're in high school or college, you're at a critical point of your life. If you realize your great need before God and turn to Him, your life could go in the right direction. But if you ignore your need for God and choose the human wisdom that is offered to you in school or in the world, you'll start down the path that leads ultimately to destruction. If you've been raised in a Christian home, it's vitally important for you to recognize your own great need for God, and begin to make your parents' faith your own. Now Esau, we read here, never did that. Esau was a pathetic figure in many ways. His mother favored his brother. His father loved him because he liked the game that he hunted. Now he's been tricked out of his father's blessing, and when he hears Isaac send Jacob off to find a wife from his mother's relatives, He realizes for the first time after 37 years of marriage that his two pagan wives were not pleasing to his father. You see, Isaac, Jacob and Esau's father, was a very passive father. Why hadn't he instructed his sons concerning proper marriage partners when they were young? Why hadn't he talked openly to Esau years before when he was considering taking these women as wives? And now when Esau discovers that his marriages weren't pleasing to his dad, he goes to Ishmael's descendants and takes a wife, thinking that he might earn his father's approval by marrying within the descendants of Abraham. Again, how sad, how pathetic this man is. Esau had a need, but he went about meeting the need in a worldly way instead of seeking the Lord. And God never broke through Esau's life. We never hear about that. I wonder this afternoon, how about you? Are you in a place where you see your great need for God? Are you like Jacob, out of schemes? Are you like Esau should have been but wasn't? Out of worldly solutions? Are you at a place where you're confused and guilty about your past, anxious and uncertain about your future? then maybe you're at a place where God can break through into your life. He won't give you a magical instant solution, but He'll begin to work when you come to the end of yourself and you admit, Lord, I have a need and I can't deal with it myself. I need you. That's the place where grace, God's unmerited favor, begins to take effect. You're at Bethel, the house of God, where God comes down to earth and earth's problems are carried up to heaven. Notice, that's the second point. God begins with His grace. And we read there in verses 10 through 15, at Jacob's point of need, God gave him a strange dream. God often has used uh, dreams to communicate with people, but we need to be careful not to put too much stock in our dreams. Dreams can be open to many subjective interpretations, and we'll discover uh, that if you read a few commentaries on Jacob's dreams. Some people kind of put in some uh, strange things there. But in a dream, and in this dream, a ladder, a stairway to heaven... From earth to heaven, angels going up and down on it. Wow, how can you understand that? What's that mean? Well, I'm going to use two guidelines. One is, how would Jacob have understood it, especially in light of what God said here? And secondly, how is it interpreted elsewhere in the Bible? The greatest commentary in the Bible is the Bible. Okay? I just have to remind you of that every once in a while, just so you remember that. Jacob understood this dream as God was breaking into his life. He said in verse 16, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. Jacob had not personally encountered God until this point. And now this ladder into heaven with the angels going back and forth between Jacob and God showed him that the God of Abraham and Isaac would be his God too. God was concerned with him in his place of desperate need and there was a bridge of access to God to seek his help and from God to receive his help. And God specifically applied his promises to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob and that's how Jacob must have understood this symbolism of this dream. We gain further insight into the meaning of this latter because of the incident recorded in John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, verses 45 to 51, it's Philip reporting to his friend Nathanael. And there it says, Philip findeth Nathanael and said unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him come and see Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said saith unto him behold an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile and so Jesus revealed that he had been had seen Nathanael under the fig tree before Philip called him that was a supernatural knowledge and i believe it was enough to convince nathaniel that jesus was the son of god the king of israel and then jesus goes on to say there in john chapter 1 verse 51 verily verily i say unto you hereafter ye shall see heaven open and the angels of god ascending and descending upon the son of man and so jesus knew supernaturally that nathaniel had been meditating on the meaning of jacob's ladder he had been thinking about that, and Jesus knew he had been thinking about that. As he was sitting there under the tree, maybe he was wondering, you know, I read about and I've had people tell me about Jacob having this dream of this ladder going up into heaven and angels coming up. I wonder how that, what all that meant. Jesus comes unto him and says, you know, I know what you're thinking. Jesus is saying nathaniel i am that ladder the promised seed of abraham i am the bridge between god and man i am the one who opens the way for man in his desperate need to have access to god in heaven and he would later say in john 14 i am the way the truth and the life no man cometh unto the father but by me So we can understand something Jacob may not have been able to grasp, that Jesus, the seed of Abraham, is the mediator between God and man. Christ is the bridge between us and our desperate need because of our sin. And God, with His abundant mercy and grace, the angels who bring God's help and protection to those who are needed, come to us through Christ. And in Jacob's dream, the Lord stood above the ladder and applied the promises given to Abraham and Isaac to Jacob. Here we have some fantastic words. Can you imagine how those words must have hit Jacob there in verses 13 through 15? If you had done what Jacob had done, what would you have expected God to say to you? If you had been a liar and a cheat and a a rascal all your life, what would you expect God to say to you? Well, if he had said anything, I would have expected God to have said, Jacob, I plan to use you and my purpose of blessing all the nations through the seed of Abraham. But because you're such a deceiving crook, crook, you're a rascal, I'm just going to have to change my plan. That's what I would have expected him to say. I can't use you. You're a mess. At least we would have expected a severe rebuke but you know what? God doesn't say a word about Jacob's failures. Instead, He assures Jacob about his future and promises him that he won't leave him until he's done everything he's promised. And Jacob thought he would had to use manipulation and scheming to get God's blessing, but here God freely gives him everything while he's asleep. That's grace. That's God's unmerited favor. Jacob didn't understand grace at this point. His response was fear. We see that in verse 17. It says, and he was afraid. This was more than just proper reverence. I believe Jacob realized, hey, I'm dealing now with God who I can't connive against. I can't cheat God. God uh, has my number. and God has taken me uh, thoroughly by surprise here. And I wonder if, John Newton, when he wrote that uh, great song, Amazing Grace, didn't have that in mind. This text, when he wrote, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved.'" God always deals with us in grace. This means that the primary reason you came to God was not because you decided to follow Jesus. Before you did anything, knowing that you would only do evil if left to yourself so that God alone could be glorified for your salvation, He chose you. He picked you. God is always the initiator. When He breaks into your life, it's His doing, not yours, not mine. If God operated on merit system, He would have picked Esau. I think Esau was a much nicer guy than Jacob. But God, based totally on His grace and not on anything else that anybody did, breaks through into our lives at a point of our greatest need, and He says, I'm going to bless you. God always begins at my point of need with His grace, and it's a totally humbling experience. So He begins at my point of need. He begins with His grace. What am I supposed to do when God begins... Like this, when God begins, I should respond to him. When God begins, I should respond to him. In the last part of this chapter here, I really don't think Jacob knew what to do. Verses 16 to 22. Because he babbles on about this place being awesome. Yeah, this is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Like Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, Jacob felt the need to fill the dreadful silence with some kind of noise. But beyond that, Jacob responded to the Lord as best he knew how. He got up in the morning, he set up a pillar with his stone pillow, poured oil on it and, as an act of consecrating it to the Lord, and then he made a vow to the Lord. Now, commentators are divided about this vow. Some say, well, it was a wonderful response of faith. They interpret the, the word there, if... Um, in, uh, the, when he makes this vow in verse 20. It says, if God will be with me. They interpret it to be since. Others say that, well, this is another instance of his self-seeking schemer trying to bargain. And it would seem that Jacob's immaturity might be that he was trying to bargain with God because that was his M.O., his modus operandi, his method of operation, that was his history. But God doesn't do business with God uh, us that way. He didn't do business with that, uh, with, that way with Jacob either. If he had, Jacob would never have made it back to the land. God brought him back into that land by his grace and his mercy. You know, many people even today say they will serve the Lord if he does such and such. No, he won't do anything, or you won't do anything of the kind because God doesn't do business that way. God will extend mercy to you and he will be gracious to you without asking anything in return. But he does say, if you love me, you're going to really want to serve me. That's the way he wants us to respond. Jacob should have responded, you alone are God. Well, I deserve your condemnation for my sins. You have shown me your grace. I surrender myself and everything I have totally to you. But instead, he tells God that if he will come through as he has promised, then God will make, or Jacob will make him his God, and he'll set up a house for him at Bethel, and he'll give him 10%. Big deal. You see, J- Jacob's response. I don't think really shows us that he understood God's grace. God's promises to Jacob are all unconditional. God or Jacob promises God based on conditions. He says, if. Thank God that he deals with us on unconditional terms, not our conditional terms. But all this reflects where Jacob is coming from. He's used to working out deals. So he's responding to God by trying to work out a deal. Now, it was immature at best, but at least it was a response. And the significant thing is, God doesn't say, Oh, wait a minute, Jacob. God doesn't rebuke Jacob. He doesn't say, Jake, you've got to be kidding me. If you can't accept my word, the deal's off. No. Instead, God let it go, and he graciously kept working with Jacob. And it would take 20 hard years with Laban, a night of wrestling with the angel of God, a traumatic encounter with Esau, to knock a lot of the rough edges off of Jacob. But God kept at it. And he's been keeping at it with some of you here today. Knocking off some of those rough edges. Really, the response by Jacob was an inadequate response, but God took it, and He began to shape Jacob into the kind of man that he needed to be. Now, that's how God works with you and me. He begins at our point of need, and with His grace, and I should respond to Him. As I think back over my experience with God, I recognize how gracious He's been to take me where I was and work with me in spite of my inadequate faith and my self-centered response to him. I have back in my file of sermons someplace, a sermon I preached years ago. In fact, it was one of the most requested sermons by my children. It was only about 10 minutes long. You'd say, "Where where is that thing? Find that thing, pastor. Why didn't you find it today? But when we were seeking God's will for the mission field, and out on deputation, my kids would ask, what are you going to preach tonight, Dad? Pillows or pillars. And it was based on this passage. Back in verse 18, it tells us that Jacob took the stone that he had put for his pillow and set it up for a pillar. Now I know some of you thought that was one and the same thing. A pillow and a pillar is the same thing, right? I used to say his head hit the pillar and he fell fast asleep. One of the messages of this passage is, that is which, which are you going to be for God? A pillow or a pillar? Are you going to be a soft Christian or a strong Christian? And I'm thankful there was a time when God took me and overlooked my immaturity and, and some of my rough edges, and He said, it's all about your response to my unconditional love and grace That you need to live for my glory. And God will do that with you. Wherever you're at, He will begin at your point of need with His grace, and He will say to you, I am the Lord, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised to you. And He wants you to respond by saying, Yes, Lord, begin your work in me. Let's pray. Father in heaven,